Humming right along this morning. Good morning once again. I'm sorry. Good morning once again. All right. This is an interactive um, crowd tonight, so we've got to make sure we get some feedback here. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's been said and it's been proven. Repeat a lie often enough and it becomes the truth. Um, that idea and the philosophy that goes along with it is credited to this guy. We're not playing who dis this morning because this guy doesn't deserve it. This guy, his name is Joseph Goebbels. He was the orchestrator and leader of the Nazi propaganda machine. He controlled the major news outlet in, in Germany. Um, he was influential. He was the one that said we need to remove books from libraries, schools, and bookstores. Um, he named his propaganda machine this. He said it is called the illusion of truth which essentially is the result of believing false information, untruth, or downright lies after hearing it repeatedly. He said this is why it's effective. He said we hear hundreds of messages and new information every day. To investigate each one to demonstrate or determine whether it's true would take time and energy. So Goebbels pointed out that the alternative to that, to you know, doing you know, all that kind of work, he said what we do when we hear something is we do two things with it. One is we compare it to what we already know compared to what we already know. But then he said this. He said, we really, um, it's really about what we want to hear. And Hitler said that, too. He said, if you want to lie to somebody, just tell them what they want to hear, and they're going to believe it. He also discovered another aspect of, of making a lie the truth. He said, whoever has, uh, if the person who's telling it has influence, if that person has power, especially if they're in a position of power, then people are more likely to, uh, to believe it. Now, we're in the middle of a series called um, Know That You Know. We took a peek last Two weeks ago, we took a peek into the life of a prophet of God. A prophet of God that I always say, you know, all of a sudden these characters in God's stories just pop on the scene, they do their thing, and then they pop off the scene. Elijah is the guy we talked about a couple weeks ago. He's a little bit of an outliner to that rule because he pops up in the first chapter, I mean, chapter 17 of 1 Kings, and then he hangs around till about the second chapter of 2 Kings. But now in 2 Kings, or 1 Kings, in chapter 17, God sends Elijah to confront the king of Israel. His name was Ahab. Now, he did that because Ahab was the worst king that uh, we had ever seen, that Israel had ever seen. And he was lying to his people. He was leading them astray, and he and his wife Jezebel. And now, I say that he was the worst king of Israel, but there was a lot of competition for that spot. Um, but they were telling the big lie. They were, the big lie was this, that they should be worshiping other gods along with um, Yahweh, along with Jehovah, along with the God, the God our creator, uh, either instead of God or alongside of God. I'll get to both of those in a second. Now, the, and that didn't go unnoticed to God. God noticed these things and God took it out on, on Ahab. So 1 Kings 16, 30, uh, before we get to Elijah, it says this, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Right? Okay, so like I said, he's outdone the guys that came before him, but there were some pretty bad ones after him, too. If we skip forward a couple of verses, verse 32 says this. Um, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Okay, little background here real quick. Um, the, there are 12 tribes of Israel, right? 12 tribes of Israel, and they split. After Solomon died, they split. Two stayed in the south, ten went to the north. The ones in the south are called Judah, and their capital was still Jerusalem, just like we would think about it. But the ten tribes in the north had a different capital, and that was in Samaria. So what we're seeing here is that Ahab put up a temple to Baal, I'll get to that in a second, right there in Samaria. So literally, it'd be like building a temple to a false god, to an idol in Jerusalem. It's the same thing that's happening here. I'm going to go forward to verse 33. Um, Ahab also made the Ashura. 
Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Right? That's the Lord God. That's Jehovah. That's Elohim that we're talking about here. So now, Jehovah sends Elijah to talk to Ahab and his wife Jezebel and tell them that it's not going to rain here for three years. It's not going to rain here for three years, basically until further notice, until we tell you differently. He's saying that. He says, and God says that, since you've been lying to my people, since you've been telling them all these things, and, and he says, I'm going to make it personal with you. Because he said, if you're going to worship a hunk of rock over here instead of me, then we're going to make it, we're going to see what's going on here. The reason that um, we're talking about Baal, the reason God said it's not going to rain, Baal has two different things, two different ways it's used in the Old Testament. Number one, it's a title for false gods, for idols, Baal, small b. Capital B, though, Baal was part of the land of Canaan. He was, a, he was an idol in Canaan where Jezebel was from. And so he was the god of weather and specifically the god of rain. Okay, so you think, why did God not make it, or let it not rain or make it not rain for three years? Because they were worshiping this rock over here. And every time it rained, they worshiped and they praised this rock over here for it to rain. And God said, well, if that's how it's going to be, he says, all righty, then why don't you go ahead and pray to that rock and see where it gets you. I'll come back in about three years and we'll talk and we'll see where you are from there. So that's what they did. That's what happened. You know? And the, actually the term Baal means, it's the, the root word for that is marriage. So God talks about that. He says, when we worship something else, it's like we're committing adultery against God, that we're loving something else, we're putting something else in his place, cheating on God, literally. The gods Baal and Ashura, that those are the two that they were worshiping. Also the gods of fertility, male and female, respectfully. So they built the temple in Samaria. Again, the capital. That stayed there until the Assyrians conquered them in like 722, but... Okay, so getting back on track here, it didn't rain, again, because they're praying to this God. It was kind of like the ten plagues of Egypt. As you look and study the ten plagues of Egypt, they are each specifically aimed at one of the Egyptian gods, right? So that's what God is doing here. He said, it's not going to rain because you're worshiping that rock here. Okay, so now, and that's what happened. It didn't rain for three years, right? And then another guy pops on the scene, all, all out of nowhere, just comes on the scene. His name is Obadiah. Obadiah's name means the servant of Jehovah. So all of a sudden, here's Obadiah, right? So Elijah is out of the scene. He's out for three years. We know a little bit about where he was and what he was doing, but there's a pretty kind of a dark moment there where we're not sure where Elijah is the whole time. Obadiah had no idea where Elijah was that whole time. Um, so Obadiah means servant of Jehovah. Um, Elijah, did I say that already? It means God, my God is Jehovah. That's what Elijah's name is. My God is Jehovah. So now, Elijah is on his way to go see Ahab. Again, because God said, all right, we're going to go have a showdown with Ahab. I need you to go get him, and we're going we're to talk to him. All right, so who does Elijah meet on his way to go see Ahab? But he sees Obadiah. And Obadiah's like, dude, we thought you were dead. Is that really you, Elijah? And I, Elijah says, yep, it's really me. He said, what I need you to do is go get Ahab, bring him over to Mount Carmel, and we're going to just talk for a minute over there. We're going to see how it's going. So he does. Obadiah, he's, he's kind of afraid of, of Ahab, but he brings him over, and he and Elijah are talking. Ahab sees Elijah, and he says to Elijah, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Obadiah, or I mean, so Elijah said, no, sir, you are the troubler of Israel. You are the one that's lying to your people. You're the one that's leading them astray. You're the one that's having them fall, um, worship false gods, and, and God's not liking it. You know, you're worshiping this rock over here. And Elijah basically says, Let's settle this once and for all. He says, let's rumble. So I don't know if some of you may be old enough to remember um, boxing that was on network TV. You know, you used to be able to watch it. Now you got to pay for view and pay per view and stuff like that. But boxing used to be on TV just like 
baseball and football is, right? Everybody remember that? Muhammad Ali, right? Smoking Joe Frazier, George Foreman before he was selling the grills, right? So if you remember those names, you'll remember one of the biggest matches of all time called the Rumble in the Jungle. Muhammad Ali and Smoking Joe Frazier, right? Well, we're not going to have Rumble in the Jungle. We're going to have the Rumble on Carmel. I'm still working on that one, but I had kind of a busy week, right? Well, can you see it, though? I mean, this is how it's going down. we got all these guys on this side, all these guys on this side. You can just imagine the ring here, right? Obadiah is going to be the ring announcer. The mic comes down to Obadiah, right? And he says uh, the famous words, ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble. All right, I think we have to pay a, a, a royalty if I say that all the way through. In this corner, we have the 450 um, prophets of the rock, the hunk of rock, Baal. Against this guy over here. All the way from Tishbe of Gilad, right? We have weighing in at 136 pounds. He's been out for three years, so he hasn't been eating a whole lot, right? 136 pounds we have, prophet of God named Elijah. I mean, can you hear the, the bell ringing here, right? Thank you, Jared. <laughs> so here we go, right? Now the thing goes up, you know, I'm sure that Elijah came out in the robe with the hood up, and it says, my God is Jehovah on his back. Now, he specifically, again, targets the 450 prophets of that hunk of rock that they're worshiping, right? And he says to them, he says, you have 450 people over here. He says, I'm alone. I am the last prophet of God standing here. He said, but we're going to have a showdown. He says, this is what we're going to do. We're each going to take an oxen, and we're going to put it up on a pile of wood for a sacrifice, but we're not going to light it. And then he says, I'm going to prepare one for you, and you prepare one, but we won't light it. And then look what he says in, in uh, 1 Kings 18.24. He says, then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Anybody besides Macy read Shakespeare in here? Shakespeare has what we call satire. He puts things in the script that is kind of embedded, and you got to be paying attention to understand where he's going with this. I want you to notice these capital G's on God here. This is literally satire right in front of our faces. It's a joke. I mean, it's a play on words. Elijah says, you call in the name of your God, small g, right? I will call in the name of the Lord, all caps, Yahweh. And then look what it says. The God, capital G, who answers by fire, he is God. You see what he's saying here? He's saying, you call on your rock over there, your hunk of rock over there. I'm going to call in the name of the Lord. And when Yahweh starts this on fire, we will know that Yahweh is God. He's kind of making it sound like it's a contest. Like, we're not sure how this is going to work out. But really what he's saying is, we know exactly how this is going to work out. We know what's going to happen here. And we know what isn't going to happen over here. Right? And all the people said, that is a good idea. Turn to somebody and say, that is a good idea. And you know why they said that is a good idea, that was a good idea? Because, okay, first of all, deep down, maybe not even all that deep down, they knew they were following a lie. They knew that they weren't supposed to be worshiping these idols, this rock and this pole over here. They knew they were supposed to be worshiping the one true God. But for some reason they bought into this and they started doing the things that the king was talking about. 
But they knew they were about to face their moment of truth. They knew and they wanted it. They wanted this moment of truth. They knew exactly where Elijah was going with this, right? Because A, they knew their history, and B, I submit to you that some of them may have already witnessed what Elijah is talking about here. This might blow your mind a little bit. Let's break those down one by one. First of all, they knew their history. The, the Israelites knew their history. Um, when, and as we're reading through the Bible, they knew very well, way better than we could ever know it. Um, I get a lot of questions about the Bible. I get a lot of questions specifically about the book of Leviticus. Right? I don't know if you've ever read through Leviticus. When I was back at the last church before we came here, um, there was a guy that was reading through the Bible. He said, I'm reading through the Bible in a year. I said, good on you. Rock on. And he said, well, I'm in Leviticus right now. And then he kind of pulled me aside and he said, and it's kind of dry. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I started making apologies for it a little bit. And I thought, what, what's this guy thinking? You know, that oh, I'm in seminary. Maybe I know a guy. Maybe I can fix something. So I said, yeah, I'll see what I can do about it, right? But many parts of Leviticus are very detailed on, on what God wants us to do. And those details are in there so we don't have to guess. When we're setting, they were setting up the temple, they were setting up the tent of meeting. We didn't have to guess where God wanted things or how he wanted. There was no debate about it. God laid it all out. That's what Leviticus, part of what Leviticus is all about. Another part of Leviticus, the beautiful part of Leviticus, lays down the history of the Israelites, the Israel nation. So, okay, so part of that, of Leviticus, now Moses and Aaron, right? Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. Aaron's his brother. He's there supporting them. He's right there the whole time. Aaron did a lot of things, first priest, first high priest. We see in Leviticus 9, we see where they are working at the tent of meeting and they're working on some sacrifices. It's, it's kind of not really complicated, but it's very complex. We can maybe unpack some of that another time. But just know that Moses and Aaron are there in front of the tent of meeting and they're doing sacrifices, they're doing prayers, and they're dedicating some things. In fact, they're dedicating Aaron's sons. I want you to look at uh, Leviticus 9, uh, verse 23. It says this, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, right? God's presence is there, and they're seeing the glory of the Lord. Then look at verse 24, blow your mind. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. When all the people saw that, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Your reaction to hearing this should be like, dude, what? Why have I never heard this one before? Where is this coming from, right? But wait, because there's more. Now that's their history. This is, give me, give me some grace here. This is about 500 years before Elijah's walking the earth, before Ahab's king, about 500, give or take. But then, now, this scene, the, uh, there's a different scene that happened in their recent history that some of those people might have been at. If they were young enough and they were old enough now, they might have been here. When the t- here, let me go. When the Temple of Jerusalem was dedicated, finished, under King Solomon, they had a dedication ceremony that we can only imagine. Can you imagine dedicating the temple to God that took them that long to build and they were planning on it for that long? And it says things like, all of Israel was there. It was days long. They had feasts. They had sacrifices. They had prayers. They had all these things going on and all of Israel was there. I mean, we cannot imagine how huge this thing was. All of Israel assembled. Does that sound familiar, by the way? What did, what did uh, Elijah tell Ahab? Get all of Israel here. Who's all here right now on Mount Carmel? All of Israel's here to watch this thing happen, to have their moment of truth, because they know about this other moment of truth. So all of Israel is assembled, right? 
Second Chronicles um, 6, this is where this happens. Second Chronicles 6 is mostly about Solomon praying and dedicating the temple. Right? He's preparing some sacrifices, he's doing a couple other things, but this is almost like a whole chapter of Solomon's prayer to God about the temple that they're about to, to, about to dedicate here. Now, then when the time of the sacrifice came, the burnt offering time came, check this out. Look what happened, Second Chronicles 7, 1. I'm not making this up. Now, when Solomon had finished praying, like I said, chapter 6 is mostly about Solomon's prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the houses. That's not enough. We've got to get a couple more verses here. Glory of the Lord filled the houses. Verse 2, the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Verse 3, all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worship and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly he is God. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. So they, now they know, right? That's that Hebrew yada, know, that they, they know that they know. They've seen what's happening and it's causing a change in who they are and what they're doing. So this is why, um, why they're saying this is a good idea, right? If our math is right, and I'm pretty sure it is, Ahab was king 62 years after Solomon died. Now, the temple was dedicated about 20 years before that. We don't have the exact date on that, but we're talking 80, 85 years between when that temple was dedicated and when Elijah's standing on Mount Carmel. I submit to you that there are maybe people that were there the first time, and if not, their parents were there, their grandparents were there. Can you imagine being at the dedication of the temple and not ever talking about it again? Oh, yeah, the fire from heaven came down. You know, it was, what? No, that's all they would be talking about. They'd be at the temple saying, remember the time fire of God came down from here? So now, these people, these Israelites, know their history well. They are all aware of these moments of truth that happened in their recent past and in their past with Moses. Right? And now, Elijah comes out and he says, that's what's going to happen right here. It's like he's pulling a Babe Ruth here. You know, he's calling his shot, saying, fire from heaven is going to come down here. And this is going to be our moment of truth. And these Israelites, why did they say that is a good idea? Because they said, we want that moment of truth. We need that moment of truth. We're missing out on that. And they all had a front row seat to what was happening here, that moment of truth. So they all said to Elijah, it's a good idea, let's do that. So back to the rumble on the Carmel. These prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, they cut up this ox and they lay it on the wood. And they start calling out on that hunk of rock to do something with it, right? The way it reads in Kings there, it says, from morning until noon... They shouted, they danced, started cutting themselves and doing other things. Nothing. Nada. And again, a little Shakespearean sarcasm here. Elijah offers a little encouragement or a little advice. He shouts out. He says, you know, maybe you should shout louder. Maybe he's busy elsewhere, your God, this rock. Right? That, by the way, is a euphemism for maybe he's in the bathroom and can't be disturbed right now. Right? But then he says, maybe he's just on a journey. Got to shout louder because he's not here. Maybe he's just asleep. you got to shout louder to wake him up. And it went on like that until 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock is the time for the evening sacrifice. And Elijah gets up. And like that scene where Gru says, my turn, Elijah says, now it's my turn. And so the first thing he does, and these people, again, they know what's coming. The first thing Elijah does 
is he repairs the altar that those prophets had torn down. Twelve stones to represent the tribes of Israel. Now remember, I've told you that they've already split here. But Elijah says, no, this is God's nation. These are God's people. He puts up twelve stones. He puts some wood up on there. And he prepares the ox and he puts the ox up there. And then he digs a trench, this huge trench around the whole thing. And now remember, we're trying to start this thing on fire, right? So you think, ah, oh, maybe he's going to slip a firecracker in there or something like that. Instead, he says to his servants over there, he says, go grab four big pitchers of water and pour it over the top. So they grab four pitchers of water and they pour it over the top. And then he says, do it again. So they do it again. And then he says, do it a third time. So they do it a third time. Now this thing is dripping wet. This trench that he's dug around there, we understand that now because it's now full of water. And then Elijah gets down to business. He's got everything ready to go. And he says to God, he prays this. He says, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Actually, he uses the word Israel, the name Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He says, today, let it be known that you are God. The same thing we saw a second ago, those capital G's. Let it be known that you are God. Let these people see that you are God. And then in verse 37, take a look at it. He says, answer me, O Lord. Answer me that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. That word know is the one we've been talking about for the last month. That's the Hebrew word yada. Sometimes we say yada, right? meaning I know. But not just knowledge. Yada means I know something and it's causing me to react in a positive way, the way God wants me to react. So he says, let them know who you are so that they will react and their hearts are back to you again. We can forget about that stick and we can forget about that hunk of rock to know who we are. And then the thing that everybody was waiting for and knew was coming. Their moment of truth happened. Fire came down from heaven. Fire came down from heaven, consumed the ox, Consumed the wood, burned the rocks, burned the water that was in the trench, and the Bible says it burned the dust. Imagine standing there watching that happen. Can you imagine what your reaction would be? Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God. And it's like a chant, the Lord, he is God. See those capital G's? Just the same way Elijah said it a second ago. They got their moment of truth. And I submit to you that deep down, and like I said, maybe even not that deep down, they knew they were following a lie. They knew Ahab was leading them down the wrong path, worshiping a hunk of rock and a stick. Putting up not only altars, but putting up temples to that rock and to that stick. And they said, no, this is, this is not the way we should be doing it. Now, the creator of the universe, obviously, is the only one true God worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. Earlier, we heard Allie reading about Joshua. Joshua presented his people with their moment of truth. 
he said, choose today who you're going to follow. And then we heard the historical account of Elijah. Elijah said to his people, who are you going to follow? How long are you going to waffle between these two? And you know what the people said? They said nothing. They just stood there and looked at him like, we have no answer. Why are we following these two different things? Their moment of truth. And then we heard Jesus give us our moment of truth. Tell us point blank, you cannot serve two masters. We often say that there's things in the Bible that, that need some explaining and are hard to get our minds wrapped around, but when God wants us to understand something, he's there with clarity, with certainty. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve a hunk of rock and serve the God of the universe at the same time. So I'm going to leave you with this. I present you with your own personal moment of truth. Leave you with the words that came from Joshua. These, choose today who you're going to serve. Your hunk of rock might look different than a hunk of rock or a stick, but it's something else. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. I submit to us that we serve the living God. Amen? Could you please stand with me? And let's continue to worship as we confess together what we believe.